1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is your word that you have given to us. And with that knowledge filling our minds and our hearts this morning, we're eager to receive your word. We know that Your word is truth, and that your word, through the truth, sets us free. Who here doesn't need that today? Lord, we also know that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Lord, we know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so, this morning, we so desperately want your word, because we want our faith strengthened. Lord, we also know that there are perhaps some in our midst this morning that have never placed their faith in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we so desperately want them to do that because we know that you love them, Lord, and we love them. And Jesus, you reminded us that just as the wind blows, we can't see it, but we can feel its effects. That's how the Spirit moves, as you're drawing people to yourself. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that as we unpack your word this morning, that you would blow in our midst, so to speak, that you would stir in our hearts and that you would cause faith to spring up in every single person. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Paul writes to Timothy here at the end of this epistle that we've been studying, but as for you, O man of God, what, what is a man or a woman of God? We use that expression often. We'll talk about someone as a man of God or a woman of God, but what is that? What does that mean? Well, it's an important question. I think it's worthy of our time here this morning. Being designated as a woman of God or a man of God is a very high honor to be the type of person who is considered a representative of the Most High God, that's incredible to think about. When you think of those in Scripture who were called a man of God, the list is pretty stunning. Moses, for example, was a man of God, a great deliverer of Israel. Samuel, that eminent prophet, and then Elijah, later on, these eminent prophets were known as a man of God. Of course, the great King David himself was called the man of God. Interestingly, as you get into the New Testament, the only person 
who is called man of God in the singular is this young pastor, Timothy, here in 1 Timothy Timothy chapter 6. Paul calls him a man of God. Without question, people still look at pastors as men of God or the man of the cloth is an older way of saying it. I found that as a pastor, sometimes people will modify their behavior because the pastor's in the room. Somebody will cuss and then they'll go, oh, sorry, pastor. Or I've walked into a wedding before and had a bridal party there and they're drinking or doing something like that. Oh, everybody stop drinking. The pastor's here. They'll completely change their behavior. But of course, in more uh, somber environments, walking into a hospital room in the midst of a crisis or a tragedy, it's a weighty thing for people to turn their attention to you as a representative of God, waiting to see what you're going to say on behalf of God to try to bring a measure of understanding or a measure of comfort to a person in crisis. You should know, though, that it's not just pastors who are considered or looked at as representatives of God, but really all Christians are viewed that way. And in fact, we see this designation extended to all mature believers in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where we read this famous text, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, your non-believing family members and friends and co-workers, if they know that you're a Christian, oftentimes they're looking at you as this representative of God. How many times if you are the kind of the, the lone Christian in your family, when you get together for the holidays and there's a meal and it's time to maybe say a prayer, they go, well, well you pray because you're the Christian after all. Or sometimes when something tragic happens or a crisis strikes your family, oftentimes even the non-believers or just kind of the nominal believers in your family will turn to the solid Christian, again, for answers or understanding or for help in that time of crisis. By calling Timothy here a man of God in verse 11, plus the strong transition that Paul uses when he says, but as for you, Paul is dramatically contrasting young Timothy against the false teachers that he has just been warning about that we studied last week in verses 3 through 10. The false teachers, as it turns out, were pretenders. They were wannabes, but not Timothy. As for Timothy, this man of God, he stood in the long line of men of God who had faithfully represented the Lord to the watching world. And as Paul contrasts Timothy against these false teachers, we're able to detect some of the key components that make up a person of God. And I find it very, very instructive as we think of ourselves as men and women of God this morning. So what is a man of God? I'm using man here uh, as a way of speaking of people in general, but what is a man of God? A man of God in the first place we see runs away from ungodliness. A man or a woman of God runs away from ungodliness. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Run away from these things. What are these things again? the things that he had just unpacked for us last week, these sinful tendencies and motives of the false teachers, things like greed, 
divisiveness, heresy, the false teaching that was going on. Paul is telling Timothy as a man of God, you need to run away from these things. You need to flee these things. Now, interestingly, the word flee here is in the present tense, indicating continuous action, meaning that this this call to flee from ungodliness was not something that you're just one and done with. It's a constant, never-ending posture of a godly person that you are daily having to flee from, daily having to run away from ungodliness because it is threatening us from all quarters every single day of our lives. And so the person of God is a person who says, I'm not going to hang around this stuff. I'm not going to engage in this stuff. You know what? I'm going to kind of be like Joseph running away from Potiphar's wife. I'm just going to flee the scene. I'm going to make a beeline away from sin and ungodliness on the daily. Not only does a person of God run away from ungodliness, but they actually run towards something. We're not just constantly trying to avoid something in our lives. We are actually trying to embrace something with our lives. We're trying to run after something and become something. So what are we running toward? Well, we're running toward holiness. That's the second thing we see here. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. There are six virtues that Mark the person of God here in this text, and it seems that he arranges them in three couplets. Now, this encouragement here to run away, to flee, and then to pursue sounds strikingly similar to another text in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, where Paul tells young Timothy there in his second letter, he says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Here, the first couplet in 1 Timothy 6 is righteousness and godliness. What is that? Well, righteousness means to live rightly. It is doing what is right, doing what is just. Godliness, on the other hand, includes righteousness. A godly person does what is right, So it includes righteousness, but godliness is doing the right things for the right reasons. Or to say it differently, doing the right things out of the right heart. See, you can do the right things for the wrong reasons, which actually isn't all that pleasing to God. Cue the Pharisees. (laughs) You can do the right things for the wrong reasons. You can keep from stealing things just to avoid going to jail. You can give money to the church to make other people think well about you. You can seek leadership in the church because you thirst for power and authority. See, a person can do the right things for the wrong reason, but a godly person does the right things because their heart has been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and now they want to obey and honor and glorify Him. The next couplet here is, faith and love. What is faith? Well, simply put, faith is to trust in God. To trust in God. Love, the word here is agape, which is love with no limits. It would include loving God and loving people, whether they're your friends or your foes or anyone in between. So the godly person here 
The person of God is marked by faith in God and love toward God and man. The last couplet here is steadfastness and gentleness. What is meant by that? Well, steadfastness, some of your translations will say endurance, refers to patience to deal with difficult circumstances. So when things are challenging, things are hard, if you're a person who has endurance or steadfastness, it means that you have the patience to uh, stand firm through those difficult circumstances. Gentleness, though, interestingly, refers to patience to deal with difficult people. So steadfastness, again, is patience to, to deal with difficult circumstances. Gentleness is patience to deal with difficult people. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of virtues that a godly person possesses or pursues, but it's a practical list for Timothy's situation because if you remember, the false teachers here in Ephesus were not pursuing righteousness. They were not pursuing godliness. So Paul is saying, Timothy, you're a man of God. Pursue these things. Remember, the false teachers were not trusting in God and in his word. Rather, they were trusting in themselves. And of course, remember that because of these things, Timothy would need love for all people. Timothy would need steadfastness in these trying circumstances. And Timothy would need gentleness in dealing with these false teachers and dealing with erring members in the church family. For those of us women and men of God today, we too need to flee from evil and we need to pursue good, run away from godlessness and run toward holiness. Verse 12 though, reminds us that the flight response of verse 11 was not the only one that Timothy was called to in light of the dangers he faced in Ephesus. Yes, the dangers should cause Timothy to flee from some things, but also he was to fight the good fight of the faith. When danger comes, we either fight or flight. The man or woman of God does both. So next we see that the man of God or a man of God remains faithful to the truth. So they flee ungodliness They pursue holiness. And third, they remain faithful to the truth. In the Greek here, in verse 12, there's a definite article in front of the word faith, which means that the English Standard Version, which we're preaching out of here in our church, rightly translates this phrase, the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. This is not a reference to Timothy's own personal belief here when he's talking about faith. What it is a reference to is the truth of the gospel that has been handed down by the apostles themselves. Um, Over in Jude, in Jude 3, um, Jude has a similar idea at play here when Jude writes this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Timothy here is being told to fight the good fight of the faith, guarding the doctrine and the truth of the gospel. We see even in 1 Timothy 6 here, 
that the false teachers and those who follow them have wandered away from the faith in verse 10. And then down in verse 21 of chapter 6, they've swerved from the faith. Again, meaning that they have turned away from the Christian faith. So Timothy, as a man of God, is called to fight for the faith, to contend for the faith, to defend the faith that was handed down to him by the Apostle Paul and the rest of the apostles. As we talk about in our membership classes in this church, this responsibility to guard the gospel, this responsibility to to guard the truth and to fight for the truth is not just a responsibility that the pastors possess. Um, We talk in our membership classes about how this is actually a responsibility that every follower of Jesus Christ possesses because here's the thing. Pastors can go astray. In fact, as we've talked about in this series, the false teachers in Ephesus were elders or pastors in the church. These were people who had been appointed there to lead the church and what they were doing was leading the church astray. And so pastors are not infallible. Pastors are human beings that are broken and flawed and in need of just as much grace as anybody else. We collectively and corporately have a responsibility in the church to guard the deposit, to guard the truth that has been handed down to us in God's word. All of us bear this responsibility. In fact, this is where our name comes from in this church. Apostles Church. We named this church that not because anybody here is an apostle in the formal sense. So sorry, but I won't be writing the book of 2 Daniel anytime soon. That's not why we called this place Apostles Church. The idea here is that you and I are stewards of the deposit, stewards of the faith that was handed down to us by the apostles. Therefore, like the early church in Acts chapter 2, we are committed to the apostles' doctrine. All of us are defenders of the truth. We're all contenders for the faith. And that's why all of us have to be committed students of the word. You've got to be. We've got to be like the Bereans in the book of Acts, who when they heard the preaching of the apostles, they didn't just go, well, I guess if Paul says it, they said, hmm, this is interesting. Let's do a Bible study. Let's see what the scriptures say and make sure that what he is saying accords with God's word. Going back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, because all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, we need to be people who are committed to it. Fourth, a man or woman of God remains faithful to their confession. Remains faithful to their confession. Look again with me, if you will, at verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of the faith, which we just talked about. And then he writes, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That word there, take hold, it means to grasp something. At some points in the New Testament, it actually means to see something by violence or by force. And Paul is saying to Timothy, you've got to take hold of eternal life. Do you find that to be an interesting thing to say to a pastor? Somebody who presumably is a solid Christian? Is, is Paul suggesting that salvation is something that Timothy is yet to receive? The answer to that question is no, 
This is not a call to Timothy for salvation. Rather, it's a call to perseverance. How do we know? Well, we know that because Paul is already confident that Timothy is a man of God, right? He calls him a man of God. But he's also confident that Timothy was called by God to experience this gift of salvation, right? He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So Paul believes that Timothy was called to this by God himself. What was the initial evidence of that call? What was the initial evidence that Timothy had received eternal life? Well, it was his good confession that he made, we're told, in the presence of many witnesses. This is almost certainly a reference to Timothy's own baptism, where Timothy was baptized in the presence of the church, and where Timothy stated his faith in the gospel and publicly identified himself with Jesus Christ and with his church. After all, church, this is what baptism is. Baptism is that moment above all others where our faith goes public, where we make our profession of faith known to others. And it is tragic, to be quite honest with you, that in many churches, baptism has been treated as if it's not that important, as if baptism is just something you get around to when you have time or when you think it's convenient. Again, baptism is the moment above all others where our faith goes public. It is our public profession of our faith. And it was the initial evidence of Timothy's salvation where he was confessing with his mouth, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And then he was demonstrating that in the presence of many witnesses. What Paul's doing here though, is he's now calling on Timothy to continue evidencing his salvation through perseverance, to take hold of that eternal life to which he had been called. Paul, like a good general fighting a difficult war, was constantly reminding young Timothy, his foot soldier, to fight the good fight. He was encouraging him onward in this battle because guess what? Even though it was a good fight, even though it's the all-important fight, it was a difficult fight. It was a challenging fight. Timothy was dealing with sinful, false teachers who were seeking to destroy the church and who were disparaging his reputation. Remember, that's why Paul had to say in chapter 4, verse 12, don't let people despise you because you're young. Presumably, people were going, no, don't listen to this guy. He's just a kid. He doesn't know anything. So Paul's dealing with a challenging church situation, or Timothy is rather, and Paul's helping him. And it must have been tempting for Timothy to, to just want to like throw in the towel. To go, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done with the church. Kind of done with this ministry responsibility. I'm kind of over having to put up with this. I wonder if any of you have ever been there. I wonder if anybody in, in this room has ever felt like throwing in the towel in ministry. Now, it should be said that there are times where throwing in the towel with a ministry is the right decision. I know some folks in our church have a background in a cult. Definitely throw in the towel there on that ministry. Others in here have had to deal with very dysfunctional churches, and that's understandable too. But I wonder if anyone has ever felt like throwing in the towel, not with a ministry, but with the ministry. Maybe you've tried to serve the Lord before. Maybe you've been involved in church ministry and 
You kind of come to that point where you say, you know what, I'm just done serving the Lord anywhere. I'm over it. I'm tired of the church. It's a disappointment to me. It's a dogfight. It's draining to me. And I'm just over it. I don't want to serve the Lord anymore. I just want to believe and mind my own business. Timothy must have been discouraged. Paul had to re-encourage him over and over again. Did you know the great apostle Paul himself was really discouraged in his ministry efforts? Don't ever forget what he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul's like, it's so hard, the things that we're going through right now. The trials are so great that death seems like a better alternative than to keep pressing on. Lots of great Christians have been in places like that. But it's not just ministry that can feel like that. Even the Christian life can feel that way. I wonder if anyone in this room has ever felt like throwing in the towel on this whole thing, not just serving, but just saying, I'm done, I wanna walk away. Perhaps somebody in this room this morning is even in that season now where you're, you're wondering, do I even want to keep following Jesus? If this is what it means to follow Jesus, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. If this is what it means to take up a cross every single day, if this is, if this is what this fight's going to be like, constantly resisting my flesh, I don't want this anymore. I'm tired of being disappointed by other Christians. I wonder if you're there this morning. If you are, my hope and prayer for you is that you would let the Word of God just wash over your heart once again this morning. As we read this text, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Oh friends, listen to me. It is no small thing to be called, to be chosen by the living God. That's no small thing. God did not get stuck with you. God did not settle for you. You know, in dating, sometimes people talk about how they don't want to settle for marriage. Can you imagine if you married someone and found out that they settled on you? I just settled, chose you. God did not settle for you. God chose you. He picked you because he loves you and he delights in you and he wants you. It is no small thing to be chosen by the living God. And if that's not enough of an encouragement for Timothy to persevere in his faith and in his, and in his ministry, in verse 13, Paul calls on two strong, supreme persons as Timothy's accountability partners. Because we all need accountability partners. And these accountability partners would help him to encourage, or help encourage him rather, to keep this command. Who's the first person that he calls on? It's none other than God the Father. Look at verse 13 again. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Paul reminds Timothy here that he is in God's presence. The very God who gives life to all things, who animates the universe, but especially the God who gives the eternal life that Timothy himself is trying to take hold of. Paul's saying, you're in his presence. And bringing God's presence into the equation adds some seriousness to this charge, does it not? 
It reminds me of when I was a kid and I would tell my brother something and he would be sure that I was lying to him. And he would say, do you promise? And I'd go, oh yeah. And then he'd go, do you promise to God? And I'd go, hmm, let me think about this for a minute. It's like, geez, when you put it that way, now I've got to think about God being here. God's in the equation here. That's what Paul's doing, sort of. He's reminding Timothy Listen, this charge is coming to you in God's presence. God himself is bearing witness to this responsibility that you have, to this calling in your life. Well, the second person that Paul calls on to hold Timothy accountable is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He goes on in verse 13, he says, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Now, this is super powerful. Because Paul wants Timothy to remain faithful to the good confession that he had made at his baptism. And what he does here is he reminds Timothy of the fact that Jesus too made the good confession. And he did it before Pontius Pilate. We read of it in all the gospels, but here's Matthew 27, 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, this is Pontius Pilate. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus said to that question, you have said so. So what's going on there? Jesus, in that moment, could have tried to save his own skin. That was the question that would be damning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you the king of the Jews? That was the accusation. Are you claiming to have authority over this kingdom and set yourself up as an enemy of Caesar? And Jesus could have denied the claim and saved his own skin, but Jesus didn't. He said, you have said so. In other words, I do not deny the charges. And Jesus sealed his own confession by laying down his life. Jesus was faithful to the end. Jesus fought the good fight without wavering. Our Lord Jesus stood for truth. And our Lord Jesus, through his own death and through his resurrection, secured eternal life for all the future faithful who would put their trust and hope in him. So Paul is saying to Timothy, he's saying, I want you to remain faithful to your good confession. And I'm calling on Jesus as an encouragement to that. Look to Jesus who made his own good confession and remain faithful to the end. He's essentially saying to Timothy, the exact same thing that the author of Hebrews writes. Do you remember over in Hebrews chapter 12? Verses one through three, we read, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are reason for Timothy to persevere in the faith, to fight this good fight. How long did he need to fight? A week? Did he need to just fight until Paul showed up in Ephesus and could relieve him of duty? No, the answer there, do you see it, church? Timothy is to do these things without blemish and free from reproach until, okay, we're going to try that all one more time. 
He's to do this until, do you see it in verse 14? You don't. So that's why I'm here, to help you guys see this. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is when the fight ends. This is when the eternal life is fully realized and experienced. If Jesus has not come back yet, and he hasn't, right? I mean, I didn't check the news this morning, but I don't think it happened yet. If he has not returned yet, then the fight goes on. You and I continue the fight for the faith. You and I continue to persevere in our faith until that moment that Jesus returns or we die and go into his presence, whichever comes first. The future return of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, where he fully and finally delivers us from all evil, from all injustice, all suffering, and where Jesus vindicates us once and for all in the presence of our adversaries is about as great of an encouragement for our faith as possible. For Timothy and for you, woman of God or man of God here this morning, the knowledge that the Lord Jesus is not just a part of our past or even just a part of our present, but that Jesus is actually a part of our glorious future is a great motivation to keep on keeping on. And so I wonder this morning if that's how knowledge of the the return of Christ strikes you. If it strikes you as a great encouragement, a great motivator in your life, because this is the last thing we see this morning about a man of God or a woman of God. They rejoice over the presence of God and the return of Christ. If you are a person of God, the knowledge of God's presence and the knowledge of Christ's return motivates you. But if you're not sure that you're a person of God, if you're not sure that you have a right relationship with God, this knowledge that Christ is coming back actually probably sort of scares you a little bit. It's kind of like if your mom says, wait until your dad gets home when you're a little kid. Your reaction to that statement all depends on your situation with dad. If dad is coming home to take you to the beach to play, you're stoked about dad coming home. But if dad is coming home to take you to the woodshed, does anybody even know what a woodshed is anymore? It's one of those really old expressions that people still use. I don't even know what that means. But if dad is coming to take you to the woodshed, then you're terrified of dad's return home from work. It all depends on your situation with dad and what's going to happen when he gets home. The godly person, the man or woman of God rejoices over the presence of God and rejoices over the return of Christ. We're not looking at Jesus coming back to judge the nations as a moment of fear and trembling for us. We're looking at that as the the ultimate climax of our salvation. And therefore we rejoice over it. We look forward to it longingly. We say with the apostle John at the end of Revelation, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's where our heart is at. Paul could speak with certainty about the return of Christ. He knew it was going to happen, but he would never dare try to pinpoint the exact moment. No one knows the day nor the hour, but whatever that future day is, it will be at the proper time, the time that's appointed by the Father. We see that here in this text. 
But I don't know about you this morning, but all this talk about eternal life, all this talk about being called by God, about a Savior who died and rose for us, who will come back again for us and make all things new, all this talk makes me want to worship. And it seems that that's the exact same thing it made the Apostle Paul want to do because the end of this passage is a doxology, which is a short hymn of praise to God. After giving this man of God a sacred charge, Paul concludes with worship. And for this great apostle, everything always came back to worship. See, the apostle Paul was a man who had an unwavering vision of the glory of God that animated everything that he did. Ever since that day, where he truly grasped who the living God was on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul was convinced that that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was worthy of all worship, all glory, and all honor forevermore. And so for all the ink that he could spill in labeling false teachers and in guiding local churches, he could never resist the urge to write songs of praise, to write notes of worship, to this God who was unrivaled in majesty, unmatched in power, unapproachable in holiness, and unrelenting in happiness. So let's very briefly, that's pastor talk for, I know I'm going long, but I want a couple more minutes of your time. Let's very briefly warm our hearts with the truths of who God is. And I promise I will make it brief. He says that he is the blessed, meaning supremely happy, the blessed and only sovereign. Isn't that good news that God is supremely happy? A lot of people think of God as indifferent. Some people think of God as angry, mean, perhaps even evil. That's not who God is. God is supremely happy. He's blessed. He delights in everything he does. He's a happy God. And he makes happy people. And he's the only sovereign. That means that he alone rules or controls the universe and the affairs of men. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, meaning that he is above and over all earthly kings and rulers. And in this context, that meant especially Caesar, who was worshiped throughout the Roman Empire. He alone, we read, has immortality, meaning that God cannot die. Now, I know it's true that we as human beings will not die either. We're going to survive death. When we physically die, that's not the end. But the difference is this, that only God has life in himself. Our immortality is a gift. His is an innate property. He is life in and of himself. And you and I only experience true life, also known as eternal life, through our relationship with him because in him is life itself. We read here that he's infinite in holiness. Paul puts it this way, he dwells in unapproachable light. Friends, we can no more approach God in his holiness than a moth can approach the surface of the sun. His holiness is blazing and us in our finitude and in our sinfulness cannot come near to a God like that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. We read also that he's invisible and incomprehensible. Paul writes, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Did you know that humans have only been able to behold God's appearing 
as a theophany, which means a visible manifestation of God to human beings, or they've only been able to appear, or behold God's appearing by seeing his glory like Moses did, or finally, by seeing his image in his incarnate son. But no man, no woman has ever laid eyes on God in his essence. God is invisible. He is spirit after all. No, I can see him. At least as we stand now. And what this means for us is that God is unreachable apart from grace. We would never be able to perceive God, to see God, to come after God unless he came after us, which he has done in his word and supremely in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to us because we cannot come to him. So for the Apostle Paul and for young Timothy and for every woman of God or man of God throughout all of history, they would conclude that it is to this God alone that honor and eternal dominion belong. Amen? Amen. What an incredible text. What profound reminders for all of us here this morning who seek to be and long to be men and women of God. We are people who run away from ungodliness. We are people who run toward holiness. We are people who seek to remain faithful to the truth while remaining faithful to our confession. And we are a people who rejoice over the presence of God and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those here this morning that have never been able to describe themselves as a woman or a man of God, in closing, we have to say this, that you can change that today. But you have to come to him in the same way as everyone else, including Timothy, by making the good confession. Consider Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So first with your mouth, here today you could confess, Jesus is Lord. And next through baptism in the presence of many witnesses, you could make that profession known and public. If that's you here this morning, I urge you, I plead with you to make the good confession today. Have your sins forgiven. Become known as a woman or a man of God from this day forward. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are reminded this morning of great reasons why you alone are worthy of our praise, why you alone are worthy of our worship, why you alone are worthy of our faithful obedience for the rest of our lives. You alone are the immortal God. You alone are sovereign over this universe and over the world that we live in and over our lives. In fact, you're the author of our lives. And so God, we worship you. We praise you in light of who you are this morning. And God, I pray that all of us would leave this church today once again, awestruck at the majesty of who you are. 
that we would revel in your glory and that we would be worshipers who worship you in spirit and in truth. So Lord, now as we sing a song of praise, a song of worship, Lord, help us to do this with hearts that are filled with praise, that are filled with gratitude, that are now spilling over in worship and in praise. Lord, be glorified in our midst, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you-